James. Thank you. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well. All right, welcome to Cloud Streaks, which is where James and I discuss a topic for an hour. Um, this week, the topic is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And when I sort of found this uh, article on Medium, I was like, what is that quote? Like, it was just, it was like, <laughs> I love that you can read a book, it's like 100,000 words, or you can read a quote that's like 10 words, and one gives you 10 times the impact of the other. Like, the 10 words can be like a 10 times the impact of 100,000 words. And so I remember I set this around to James uh, and a few other friends. And James was like, dude, we have to do a podcast on this. We have to do a podcast on this. Um, so, yeah, I just love the power of quotes. It's kind of like, I don't want to read books. Just give me quotes. Yeah, no, I, I, I love quotes. And I love quotes very much like the one from last week in our episode. Uh, Civilization began when the first angry person threw a word instead of a rock. Yeah, I, I love that. Um and if that's the case, then we have much civilization today. Donald Trump is going around civilizing the world by throwing angry words left, right, and center. Um, so, well, yeah. Let's keep, yeah, let's keep it civil then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, basically, I, I lo- like, if you can't make a quote, so I sort of also do a bit of blogging. And I'm like, I've got to kind of make my own new quote. Um, and sometimes I can do it, sometimes I can't. But this is just an epic one. Um, so James has got a few quotes, um, so that he thought he might roll out for us. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's fast. Like, I'm, I'm seeing that it's an art form and I don't think I can, I don't know I can, of any better artist that I can think of than Eleanor Roosevelt, because some of her quotes are just truly Churchill. Churchill. I can, I can, he's, he's, yeah. Anyone who writes gets better at writing. I know it's kind of. Ridiculous thing to say, but those are both writers, those people. Yeah. Well, just just let, just listen to these ones. We should mm. do one thing a day that scares us. Mm. Like, like, pinnacle. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Ooh. Yeah. I, what and, I like also around this is like, when will they stop judging me when I stop letting them judge me? Mm. Mm. It's the same thing from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then always tasteful. Women are like tea bags. You don't know how, <laughs> you don't know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. Um, so, so, just just a caveat: this is Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there was the epic one that we talked about a couple of episodes together. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. So maybe we should talk about Eleanor some more. <laughs> yeah, um, she's really cool. Um, she is really cool. Mm. All right, um, so we're going to sort of do a bit of talking about addiction and connection and sobriety. Um, mm. So the first sort of thing was there's this model um, which I have heard a lot of psychologists talk about called the biological, social, and psychological model. It's kind of three spheres, and they say you need to get the biological side right, you need to get the social side right, and you need to get the psychological side right. So it's so a Venn a... diagram where the yeah. spheres are overlapping. Yeah. So an example with biology, you need to sleep well, you need to eat well, you need to exercise well. But just because you, you've got all those things right doesn't mean you're going to be good. <laughs> you might have really bad, you know, headspace. So then there's social. So some of this is like, you know, you should be probably having some human interaction. You should probably hopefully have healthy human interaction. Psychological is kind of like the internal side. Do you have self-esteem? Do you have social skills? Mm. And basically living a good life is getting all three of these things right. So the biological, the social, and the psychological. Well, so what that would say is having good mental health. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. But I think you need to get all of them sort of right to live a good life. Mental health, you know, is sort of part of it, mm. uh, you know. And so, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that, James? Yeah, I, I really like this way of thinking, and I think it'll play in well to um, the the topic of addiction as a whole because um, I don't know about you, Duncan, but I can be fairly binary in my approach to problems or, <laughs> or concepts. And so when you think of addiction, it's often... Um, like in, in my circle, described as a biological function. You know, mm. if, um, if you talk about addictive substances, for example, then if a, um, a neurological or chemical response um, between the substance and the brain, and so we always would think of addiction in the biological sphere. Um, so I really like this because it's just starting to um, tease out the other two aspects which are steeped in the, um, the relationship we have and I guess the the health of our mind, so to speak. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that there's been a lot of parts of society sort of pushing this. Um, and so there's this thing called the DSM, um, which was came out in the 80s. There's an interesting documentary on it, and it stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And now I've said that it came out in the 80s. I'm sure it came out in the 70s or something. <laughs> but what they first did in this thing was that they basically tried to describe different mental disorders. So this is where they first came up with ADHD. This is where they first came up with borderline personality disorder. This is where they first came up with all these different things. Before that, they didn't have names. And what they tried to do is to describe them differently. And then they tried to have these sort of questions to go along with it. Um, and this was meant to help. Um, and what happened is that you could go to your psychologist and then they could say, ah, oh, Duncan has ADHD or whatever, right? Um, and out of this, what sort of happened is and there's an interesting book called How um, Pharmacists or Pharma Pharmacology Companies Turned Sorrow into a Disorder instead of making it a good part of life. And then they said, okay, well, every one of these disorders, part of it could be biology, but part of it's social, part of it's, you know, psychological. But we're going to make a different drug for every one of the disorders. And then we can prescribe this. And then we can make money out of this. And so there was a sort of, oh my God, biology would have solved this. Um, but I would say um, that... Most psychologists today would say that biology is part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture, and that it's very unlikely that just having this antidepressant alone is going to solve everything. Mm. So, where I see um, the real interesting aspect with, like, uh, so it, it helps to try and understand what's happening when we experience addiction. Um, so I'll try and like paraphrase it as best I can, but I had a little bit of digging around because I. This, this, <laughs> <laughs> they did not intuitively uh, um, uh, known to me, um, but uh, like according to Harvard Medical, so we as in our brains registered pleasure the same way in 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 all experiences, uh, and that basically is when we have a pleasurable or what we would consider a pleasurable encounter, the brain um, releases the neurotransmitter dopamine, and so um, and so that's kind of the the um, I guess where we put our attention in terms of, well, what causes the release of dopamine and what causes us to then re rely on that um, process. And so when they look at addictive drugs, like in the case of heroin or morphine and how it provides a shortcut to the brain's reward system, we go from um, like being able to produce dopamine normally to suddenly becoming dependent on that substance to create that, um, that effect. Uh, and so that's where they're saying, um, well, according to what I've uh, read, is that the uh, dopamine interacts with glutamine to take over the brain's system of reward-related learning. 
And so no, and so now the system is actually relying on this substance to do it for us rather than us being able to do it ourselves. And that's how they say addiction can arise. Yeah, um, I think addiction can come from many places. Um, but one is sort of biology led, um, mm. like eat chocolate, get happy, um, you know, and but also one can come from sort of story led, uh, help somebody out, get happy. Mm. Um, and you can have sort of many different places and there's different stories about this, but I sort of thought that you can get addicted to almost anything. So like no work, too much work, no exercise, too much exercise, no food, too much food, no human interaction, too much human interaction, no alcohol, too much alcohol. And that I think addiction is kind of got weird stories around it in society. Mm. And so there are some substances that are okay. Like if you had a glass of wine, they're probably not going to say you're an alcoholic, but if you had like one, I don't know, puff of or you know weed are you a pothead and so there's this weird sort of like um stories that sort of one thing is okay and one thing isn't okay and yeah yeah, i think it's not necessarily a fair you know i think an addiction might be like i I don't know you go to the gym too much and you get body dysmorphia and then you have steroids and a whole lot of other stuff like that yeah so uh, i guess another way to try and um you know help make a distinction is when are you able to operate normally as a person with or without the, the certain trigger like you know i like how you mentioned that you know it can be both ends of the spectrum it could be no alcohol or too much alcohol so if you are able to function normally without a drop of without a, a drink of wine then i would say you're not addicted but if you are noticing that you can't you're not comfortable or you can't concentrate until you have a glass of wine uh, that would indicate uh, in my estimation a dependency developed in the brain or in whatever one of the spheres that we um, talked about that you identify that glass of wine as bringing you back to normal does that make sense yeah um i don't know if we need to define addiction because i think there can be good addictions and bad i was going to talk about this Mm. i think dependency might be what you're sort of saying more um, and I think dependency can sort of be different to addiction. Uh, so there's this really, really interesting chart where they've got a whole lot of substances, and we'll put a link to it on Wikipedia. But one side is called the dependency potential, and that's sort of d- different to addictiveness. Does that make sense? Um, and then the other side is the active dose versus lethal dose. And so at the highest from a dependency side is sort of heroin, but then the second highest is nicotine, uh, cigarettes. And so one of the things I think is really interesting is that when cigarettes came along, 90% of people in, say, the West, like America or Australia, were smoking cigarettes in sort of like, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s. And now it's 10%. And this, the only thing more addictive than that is heroin, apparently. And coke, this is above cocaine, etc. Mm. Um, and we've been, as society, been able to go from 90 to 10. Um, and one of the things just I thought was really interesting about this dependency is it's not just the biological side. Um, what it was also was the sort of habitual side. Mm. So you'd be out having a drink with your friends in the 50s or whatever, and everyone's smoking. And so it was actually a lot sort of more easy to do. You know, part of it is like, well, if it's hard to get, then it's actually harder to become addictive. So it was basically this sort of ritual. Oh, I'm going to go and have, you know, a drink. I'm going to have a cigarette. And so the addictiveness was partially the social settings and what was okay um, and not just uh, the actual substance of it. Yeah. Um, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and the, the, the famous study or the, my favorite study um, that adds credence to this was when they were monitoring soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War. 
And during this time, like, uh, so apparently, uh, allegedly, while you're over there, uh, heroin was a very prevalent and widely available substance. Uh, and so the, the hypothesis was that there were going to be all of these soldiers coming back from uh, Vietnam into the US addicted to heroin. Um, and as laid out in this chart, it's the most highly addictive substance or the one that creates the, the highest level of dependency. But what they found was that there was no um, epidemic of heroin-addicted uh, ex-con soldiers. And, yeah. and, and so that kind of, uh, they looked into this a lot more than I'll be able to explain here. But um, one of the, the rationales behind that was because the soldiers came back into their loving communities and their families where they were no longer dependent on the substance to get to get them through the horrors of war while in um, while in Vietnam. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful study. Um, so I've forgotten what percentage of the soldiers for the US, but it was some huge number, like 70% or something of them were actually what you would consider like heroin addicts. They were using heroin on a sort of daily basis. Mm. And I think part of it was social. Everyone else was doing it. Part of it was psychological. They're at war. You know, it's, it's not exactly great times. <laughs> um, and they had really easy access to it, and it was high quality. And then they thought that all these soldiers would come back. But what they saw in the studies was that 95% of the people who were considered to be, you know, high users over in Vietnam were able to stop immediately. So they got back yeah. to America, and it wasn't like, I have to go to rehab, and there's all these withdrawal symptoms. It just was like, all right, no longer doing this. And so this is, according to the studies, the highest dependency. And so yeah. this is the one, like, literally overnight. And that's a huge, interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so this would, um, I, I, I just found it here. So, um, so they did argue against this for some circumstantial reason. But so um, a researcher called Bruce Alexander then did this same experience on rats. But what they found was that in the first experiment, they had two water feeds, one with water, one laced with heroin, and the rat would taste the heroin, but then it would just constantly go back to the heroin bottle until it killed itself. And they're like, aha, see? Mm. But then he said, well, wait, what happens if we change the environment? Mm. And so instead of it just being a cage, he created, quote, rat heaven. Where <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a rat in a cage, I mean rat heaven. Rat heaven. <laughs> this is a rat race, this is rat heaven. Yeah, so um, he put more rats in so that they were um, social. He gave them lots of stimulating um, activities like rat wheels and whatever else rats like to do. <laughs> and it, the, the, the result was the exact opposite. They, none of the rats drank from the heroin. They just kept on drinking the water. So it was quite startling to be able to replicate this and say, well, look, when we actually give them a healthy environment, it no longer lends credence to it simply being a highly addictive, quote, substance um, that then caused them to uh, uh, regress until they kill themselves, so to speak. Mm. So I suppose the main thing I sort of wanted to take out of this is that I think society has different like stories around something. So most mm. people have probably had a, a drink of alcohol in their life. Yeah. But then they're not like, well, I had one drink and then I became an alcoholic. And they're not like, it was the alcohol's fault, i.e. substance. Yeah. But then if someone had like one puff of weed and they became a pothead, well, it was the weed's fault. And if you look at the charts here, it says weed is less dependency, you know, uh, or like, you know, addictive dependence than alcohol. Mm. And so I'm not saying that the substances don't have anything to do with it. But I think to say that it's entirely substance, i.e. 100% biological, yeah. is probably not fair. So then there's the, the social and the psychological. Um, 
And one of the things that I sort of think about, like an addiction is kind of something you want to do. This is different to dependency. And dependency is something you can't not do. Does that make sense? Well, and maybe okay. Is, so hang on, hang on. And maybe that's this. So like, for instance, I used to not want to go to the gym. And I sort of forced myself there because it was interesting. I oh, know so it was meant to be good for me. But then what happened is I was able to change the stories around going to the gym. One, it's this time of peace where I don't get, nobody can talk to me. I go in the morning before work. Two, I get to listen to podcasts and audiobooks. And three, it's good for my health. And so now I really look forward to it. And I, I used to have to like really will myself to go to the gym. And now it's super easy. I want to go. I want to go. Mm. Yeah. So like, I, I think it's important um, that we acknowledge at least your, I guess, more nuanced approach to addiction as a definition. So you would say there's good addiction and bad addiction. And Correct. maybe bad addiction is dependency and good addiction would like be desire or just something uh, so similar. I bad addiction is something you can't not do. Right. Good addiction is something you want to do. Right. Okay. So exactly. So you would still be able to at least identify or distinguish a good addiction as something where if you couldn't do it, you could at least then say, well, you know, I, I still want to do it, but the fact that I don't get to, I'm okay. Would that be yeah. fair? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, exactly to what you were saying, like you change the story for going to the gym. And so now you convince, well, you have molded the narrative into a way that you now feel like you are good addicted to going to the gym. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, all right, so that's interesting. So I think this is where we go out of the biological and into the psychological. And this is where we're looking at how do we, how did the cycle, the psyche play a role in whether or not we can uh, manifest a good or bad addiction? Um, and which I think is really, really fascinating. Um, so do you have any thoughts on what could be a psychologically bad uh, condition to create an addiction? Yeah, so um, from a psychological one, like for instance, I need to be skinny. And if I'm not skinny, mm -hmm. then I'm not good looking. And yeah. so I, I would say it wasn't the food that made you not eat the food. Um, I, it depends on, you know, if you're in, I don't know, a developed country, you can get hopefully very tasty food. Um, so it's not like this food is whole horrible and I refuse to eat it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it is like, I think I need to look a certain way um, yeah. or whatever else it is. So I think that's an example of a sort of story. But then, I don't know, workaholism might be another one. Mm. I need to be rich. Um, and if I'm not rich, then life is bad. And so then you kind of, you know, work more than you should into it to an unhealthy degree yeah. um, to sort of fulfill some sort of need. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my two cents on the psychological side is we can, we can possibly see bad addictions popping up when we replace a substance um, as a coping mechanism during some, some form of lack or trauma. Um, so for maybe, for example, if you were raised in a, household where um, let's just say that you know safety was not always a, um, uh, a domestic given. violence yes yes <laughs> um, you could instead turn to a substance like alcohol to give you that reassurance and so psychologically it would be ideal for example for myself to be able to have someone that I could rely on to make me feel safe and make me feel loved but if I didn't have that I would not just then give up I would try and look for something else to fill that void so to speak 
Um, and so maybe that's why I could then in turn become an alcoholic because if I don't get this psychological need, I'll try and look for that somewhere else. Totally. So you've, you've got, so some people said substance is a, a Panadol. I think it's called paracetamol in the US. Basically something bad in your life and you want to get away from it. And your way of getting away from that bad thing is to switch it off with alcohol or switch mm. it off with illicit drugs. Mm. And so the cause of the addiction is not the alcohol or the illicit drugs itself. It's the, the trauma, e.g. from domestic violence, I think James is using there. So the root cause is the psychological side, not the biological side. And so this is what this sort of quote was saying. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And I think it's sort of saying that the key thing is like a lack of connection to others, a lack of connection to purpose, a lack of connection to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and if you have that, then you don't have problems, which you need to hide from through some sort of substance, which is a Panadol removing the downside or a paracetamol removing the downside. Yeah. So, I mean, that um, and that can help also explain why some people can drink a half a bottle a night. And other people will drink one glass and they're suddenly addicted, where those who drink a lot more don't feel the exact same effects. So that's why I really like the, um, the, um, the three circles, because it doesn't just say, well, all of the credence lies on the, the substance itself that determines whether or not it's an addictive substance. Mm. It might actually be, do you have an addictive tendency? And that might be because you don't have certain elements psychologically or socially that make you feel mentally healthy. That makes sense? Yeah, I think one way to look at it is like, is it removing downside, e.g. A, a Panadol or Paracetamol, or is it adding upside? So, for instance, you're drinking alcohol because you hate your life and you don't like yourself. And the only way to have that feeling not be there is to effectively write yourself off. Yeah. Or you can catch up with some friends on a Friday and you have, you know, a few glasses of wine and alcohol is a social lubricant and you have a laugh and you have a whatever else it is, right? So it's the same substance, but it's used for different reasons. One is to remove downside and one is to add upside. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, so in the initial blog that you shared, which again, I found incredibly compelling. Um, it was written by a fellow called um, uh, Johan Hari or Har I don't know. <laughs> Harry. Um, he also did a TED talk. The TED talk's wonderful too. Yeah. So he yeah, I think he's like from some sort of you know Nordic country. But oh, sorry, keep going, James. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna butcher it no matter what. So. Yeah, <laughs> um, so he talked about his decades of work in the fields of trauma and mental health and why he believed that the root of almost everything we suffer through is a severed connection that we never figured out to, how to repair. So that goes back to the previous point about how he said the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Mm. Um, so I, this is incredible because I find it as another data piece that um, not only has been made apparent to me in the past year. So the fact that I'm starting to read on psychology in that time, I'm sure has little bearing to this, ho-ho. But it talks to another point on the contention that much of what can be considered as our current mental health, I think um, ha can be determined by childhood trauma. Um, so people I've been reading like Harville and Helen Hendricks, Dr. Shafali, Estelle Perez, Marissa Pierre, and others, they all go to great lengths to talk about childhood wounds or trauma. 
and the and the severance of that connection? Uh, sure. I think it can come from many, many places. Um, not, you know, childhood being one of them, but I don't know. Some people have a vision of their life that they think it should be and it's just not measuring up and they try really hard and then it sort of becomes a bit, you know, a, a way of, you know, not helping there. But I thought I'd just look at connection as the first most obvious part, which was connection to other humans. Mm. Um, so it used to be that we lived in little groups of 150 people, which is Dunbar's number, and you knew them very, very well. So 150 people, they say you can know everything that's going on in people's lives. Beyond that, you can't. And mm. then normally if you got to a tribe of, say, 200, it would split into two. Um, so I think that today it's much easier to have a connection with yourself because you've got your phone and the internet and you can, you know, sit there reading indefinitely. Um, yeah. Then you've got the next circle, which is kind of your core family. Um, so family size has gotten smaller, but, you know, you can spend time with them. I don't think that's changed. But then beyond that core family, there's much less tribe. So, so you don't have the same 150 people in your village that you see all the time. Mm. You, you know, you, you don't see them. <clears throat> and so for a lot of people, they don't have tribe at work. In fact, they might actually actively dislike their co-workers and never want to see them outside of work. Mm. And another place that sort of tribe came from was religion. You would go to church every Saturday, as an example, and you would see the same people. Um, and so I think this sort of connection, there, there is a space which was where well, you lived in the tribe, a hunter-gatherer, or you lived in the village, yeah. or you went to church, whereas now, you know, the world's becoming more secular, i.e. less religious, um, and work is seen for, by a lot of people as this, you know, tax on life and impediment, and not a place where they have, you know, community. And so I think that there has been a, a dropping in the number of people that you would have close connections with um, versus the past. Mm. Um, and you see this, like, in, in these studies, like, a lot of people in America, like, if you were in a bad place, how many people would you call? And it's gone from, like, four... 30 years ago to like one and a half now, mm. i.e. the quality of close bonds has dropped massively. Yeah. Yeah. So um, without being anywhere near close enough to the data myself to make any kind of reputable <laughs> observation, but I do think it's interesting that distinction you make about how it seems like, you know, let's go all the way back to um, tribal days and just um, fast forward to today's world where we see um, this apparent proliferation in addictive tendencies starting to occur. And while we do see, while we can observe that things like opium, alcohol and tobacco could be relatively, uh, well, maybe not alcohol. Alcohol has been around for a millennia, um, but they're more like recent phenomena. But this idea that, you know, we've come from these, these tribal-like uh, environments where we have perpetual connection to our small community to now where, as you would say, we've become more secular. And that could actually be, you know, leading to or a symptom of having far less connection, which could be creating this this gap in our, um, I guess, the, the desires that we have to feel that connection. Yeah, I think because we stayed with the same people, like you could, the mobility didn't happen. Before the Industrial Revolution, the average person had not been more than 15 miles from their little village because it's, that's how far you can walk one day and then walk back. You're not just going to live out in the sort of, you know, wild or whatever. Um, mm. And so there were, I don't know, rich people that were on their horses or whatever. And so you had the same people around all the time. And you also lived a lot less. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, you know, you got to know them a lot better. But now the only people you have around all the time are pretty much your immediate family and yourself. And so there's this sphere. And so, again, that's been sort of dropping as mm. people move for a job. 
And I think, so all else equal, if you look at the studies and you think from a sort of first principles perspective, the amount of quality relationships that you have beyond your immediate family has been dropping. Mm. Um, and note, like James is, and I don't live in the same city anymore, which is crap. James moved to my city. I'm not moving to your city. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> we, you know, we try to maintain a friendship um, and just having a phone call. And that's kind of what this podcast grew into um, because we wanted to have not just quantity, but quality. Um and so James is very busy, has small two, two small kids, and I have two small companies. Um, and um, <laughs> this, this, you know, meant that just discussing a topic meant that I looked forward to catching up with him. So it's not just catching up with somebody, it's looking forward to catching up with someone. And you'll see this, like some people you're like, oh, I can't wait to catch up with so-and-so. And other people you're like, oh God, if I never saw them again, that's totally cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I, I think we've been able to move from just so i would count james is not my immediate family but i would count him as one of my very best friends um and i would call him if stuff was going down <laughs> but part of the reason for this is because we catch up on a weekly basis and i look forward to it and then i look forward to it because we talk about interesting things well i think they're interesting and we record them and some of you listening might also think they're interesting <laughs> but potentially potentially yeah so um i think that's a um so that's a good maybe sample of one in terms of connection through this modern lens done well. And a large part of that is thanks to it done very consciously, like with intent. And um, I guess we, you know, set up a structure around catching mm. up around these podcasts and discussing ideas. Like there's a lot of, if you think about it, a lot of effort had gone into maintaining this relationship or at least this dynamic, I should say. Um, and that what, what I wanted to bring out of that is the the point I want to make in regards to in the early days in um, the Paleolithic period or when we were still in tribes, it, yes, it may seem like we were much more um, deeply rooted in connection in those around us. But I would also hypothesize that that had a lot to do with the fact that we were in perpetual survival mode. Um, and as we've spoken to in the past, um, you know, homo sapiens learn to separate themselves from the rest of the gene pool because of our ability to cooperate. And that instance or that, 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 that um, semblance of cooperation, I think, turned into this desire or ability for connection. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think there was more natural connection. Like, mm. you were living in the village and you were subsistence farmers, and so you had to kind of work together and you would talk and because you had known them since you were born and, you know, you, you know, you stayed in the same place, there was massive overlap. Mm. Um, whereas now, often in a job, you sit in an office and you might talk a little bit to each other. But, you know, I think the average job has been like three years and then you move on to the next job. And so you're not spending your entire life with someone. You're spending maybe three years with them. Mm -hmm. And instead of there being significant amount of cooperation to like farm or to go hunting together, there doesn't have to be any. And so I think the, long, the length of the relationships you have has been shortening. And I think yeah. the amount of natural overlap has been less. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically, yeah, the, the natural operating environment has meant shorter and less. And therefore, connection has gone down um, because of that. But I do think you can have higher quality connection today because I think we've got more you know, books and podcasts and everything else. And we can talk by phone. But it used to happen naturally. Yeah. Now exactly. you have to actually proactively do it. Yeah, so I would agree that that, um, that natural occurrence was very high. Um, well, I wasn't around, so I wouldn't know. But I would um, <laughs> um, I would think that it would be. And it's because of, one, this um, perpetual survival mode. But the other would be um, the, the, semblance, the idea of trust. Like, you couldn't just cooperate um, in a transactional way um, because then that would be 
I think a zero sum game. If I think about it more, I might be able to be more nuanced. But the trust element helps us to then be able to create synthesis and um, a, a bigger pie for everyone. But now we don't live in a world where it's survival mode or you know survival card are taken care of and we can take two or three steps up Maslow's hierarchy. Oh, mentioned it, nailed it. <laughs> um, where now we want to look for love and belonging. But because, um, and again, this is just my thoughts on it, um, but because we don't live in a world where we have to um, worry about survival, we don't feel that natural tendency to worry about, at least at the conscious level, to worry about connection. But I would think that it has been programmed enough enough for the brain to want it, even though we don't know how to consciously get it, which is why some people can te- can end up becoming addicted to other substances or things. And th- th- that's my hypothesis. Well, I think it's sort of saying that the opposite of um, addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. It's like if you've got problems in your life that make you really unhappy and they can stem from anywhere, childhood, whatever, um, then one way to try to get rid of it, to remove the downside, is addiction to a substance, which is basically trying to block the pain out. And they say, well, one of the connection, I think, is to people. And I sort of think that the natural amount of time you spend, length and overlap because of the work you're doing, can be significantly lower than what it was, say, 100 years ago or 200 Mm. years ago. But then I think the other one is not just connection to people, it's connection to meaning or purpose. Um, Mm. So it sort of shifted. Um, You know, it used to be just like we had to spend all our time farming the land so that we didn't die. But now we have the luxury of being able to say, well, what should I do with my time? You know? And so if you actually look at the people with the highest suicide rates, it's the people that are the most wealthy and the most educated. And the reason they say for this is that these are the people that did everything you said. I got a good job. I got you know married, I have kids, etc. Why am I feeling empty? And because there's nobody to point the finger at, then they become hopeless and despair. And then they sort of want to end it. Whereas if, I don't know, you're... In a, in a Syrian civil war, you're like, well, life's bad because of the civil war. <laughs> or if you're, I don't know, a minority, you're like, well, you know, the, 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 the elites held me down. And so whilst life might be good, you've got a finger to point at. But if you are having no finger to point at, then mm. you can become disillusioned or hopeless. Mm, yeah. Oh, no, I, I love the, that, that, that idea of having someone else to point your finger at in terms of why I'm not happy or why I don't get, um, um, you know, why I feel like I, that life isn't working out the way it is. And so in, in another um, circle, this I found or I, I read about how this is a, a large explainer for things like conspiracy theories popping up is that as human beings, we like to think that someone out there is responsible for our lives not working out the way that we'd want to. We'd like to think that we're being oppressed by some kind of... Um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking Maleficent force, <laughs> something like that. But I think it holds true in this fear as well, because like you said, Duncan, it's like, well, if I do everything society tells me to do and I'm still not happy, then it would be very hard for me to point the finger to myself and say, well, I didn't actually go after what I wanted in the first place. I think it's, it's even less than that. Like, people don't know what they want. So, so they're told, I think, and this is like my you know, very sort of reductive characterization of the average story that Western society tells. A good life is earn lots of money, find an attractive partner and have kids. And if you do those things, you should be good. Now, I think there's a crisis of meaning because we don't no longer have other things to worry about. You used to have to worry about, you know, more people die from eating too much food than not enough food. 200 years ago, 90% of people are illiterate. Now, 10% of people are illiterate. You're more likely to die 
from overeating than you are from all of like, you know, the wars and terrorism and everything else put together. And so the things that we used to worry about, no longer do we need to worry about. And so now we have the luxury of worrying about what, what does it all mean? <laughs> um, and I don't think that, you know, most people spend as much time sort of thinking about that. And so one of the things that I've sort of found is a good hack for meaning is to help make the world better. Mm. Um, and it seems so obvious and so simple. Um, but I, I found if you do this, then you can have meaning. And if you have meaning, then your life has purpose. And then you don't have a crisis of purposelessness. <laughs> so this would be what uh, our mutual acquaintance, Jordan Peterson, would characterize as responsibility. Where for what he found, a lot of male individuals were um, wallowing in their current predicament and not having any idea how to get them out of um, the pit of despair that they were finding themselves in. And so what he would say is, find a load and carry it, uh, which I think is, a, is a, um, a similar notion to what you're saying, Duncan, which is just figure out a way to make the world a better place. Um, I think I, I think that just don't just take any responsibility because sometimes it's not necessarily good responsibility. <laughs> you could be helped make the world worse. But I think if you want to make a difference, and hopefully it's in to help make the world better, you've probably got to take ownership of something. And therefore, you have responsibility for it. So mm. if you don't have any responsibility or ownership, then you can't actually make any difference because therefore you're not needed. Like if you're totally superfluous, then you're not actually helping. And so I think that, yeah, you want to try to find something that will help make the world better. And then you want to take some ownership for it, which means having responsibility for it. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Responsibility done well is invigorating is mm. inspiring uh you know it, it makes it sort of tangible responsibility done badly is you've crushed yourself and it's too much and you can't get out from the under the weight of it so i think no responsibility is bad too much responsibility is bad but also responsibility help make the world better not making the world worse mm. so so here's where we can kind of tease out this um the two dimensions of make the world a better place and how it plays into our thoughts on addiction and connection so on the one hand, you could find a way to make the world a better place or find some positive responsibility um, that you uh, care for. So, for example, mine might be um, looking after my two children. You know, I find that to be a highly, a, a, a very big responsibility, but a highly rewarding one. <laughs> there might, though, be, Duncan, responsibilities or ways to make the world a better place without having any connection to other people. So maybe there is a scientist or a researcher in a lab by themselves trying to figure out how to cure cancer. Maybe one day they do. Do you think you can get the same level of meaning and therefore, I guess, um, as much out of life if you have high calling or responsibility, but there's no connection associated to it? Yeah, well, I think you can look at it from like first order connection, i.e. James and I talking personally, or second order connection. If you're helping make the world better, presumably that's going to help humans as part of it. Now, it can also be helping the environment, which I think would also help humans, so that you can actually help, um, you know, make other humans there. So you have connection to others that you don't necessarily actually interact with. So I'll give you an example for Ed Rollo. I work with other people here, but we're making education resources for secondary schools that I really hope um, help make the world better. Um, so, yeah, um, I think you can have connection through directly interacting with people and connection through not necessarily directly interacting with people. Mm. Yeah, so um, the other part that um, Johan, I'll just say his first name, <laughs> talked, <laughs> talked about uh, in the blog was 
one of the things that he finds that has led to this world of severed connections is the digital age. Now, we've talked about this in the past where um, social media is not bad. Social media done bad is bad. Social media done well can be very, very helpful. Um, but what he has talked about is that he doesn't believe to a degree that the digital age is helpful. In fact, he's, he, he's contending that a severed connection by way of fostering inauthentic connections. Um, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, again, I don't, I don't think that paper is good or bad, or that the internet is good or bad, or that social media is good or bad, but like how you use it. And mm. um, if you look at the studies, um, so there was one recently, and this is self-reported, which I found interesting. It was like, mm. do you think social media is good? Do you think it's mixed good and bad? And do you think it's bad? And I'm forgetting the numbers. I think 10% said good. Mixed was like 60%. And then, so that's like, you know, good and bad. And then 30% bad. So these were people that were saying, it's not good. You know, this is them self-reporting. So I think all else equal. Connection is just time you spend with others times the quality. So quantity times quality. For better or worse, I think the quality of social media is worse than what people had before. Mm. And you've seen this. There's pushing fake news, you know, status anxiety, eating disorders, etc. And so people online are, you know, saying some things that they mightn't say in person. Um, and the, the whole culture, and this is sort of what we are talking about freedom of speech last last um, week or before, is like, I think that the quality of, or, you know, discourse has actually gone down. Mm. And partially that's because, you know, you don't you can hide behind this. You don't have to have, you know, people see you because you know, they know you from down the street. You can yell at some people from across the other side of the world and not even use your own name. And so I think that, yeah, it's going to get better, but we need to learn how to use this. Mm. Um, and that social media, in some respects, is the new smoking. It's addictive and it's bad for you. Mm. Um, and so this is interesting. Like, is social media an addiction, a scourge? Is it just like nicotine, where 90% of people were smoking it in the 50s and now 10% are? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with the, um, the notion that this is a new for want of a better word, substance, and we need to learn how to use it better. Um, it, it, I, I, it's not like smoking in the way that, like, well, any cigarette will ingest harmful chemicals into your lungs and not necessarily be good for your health. But there is, I would argue, a element of social media that if we did learn to harness it properly, wouldn't be um, such a, uh, I guess, detrimental effect on people. Um, and I think it's, it's it's going to have this kind of similar life cycle where we're now we're still in this nascent stage of well we just have an abundance of it all of a sudden and we're still trying to figure out what the hell to do with it. Um, and I think once it matures and once our relationship with it matures, um, the hope is that we don't then continue to have this um, like this dual track experience where some people. Uh, you know, uh, just fostering this level of inauthentic connection where other people are using it to enhance their existing authentic connection. Yeah, um, so, you know, in different countries, the, the legal age to buy alcohol is different. Uh, I think in the US it's 21, in Australia it's typically 18. But you can get on social media when you're 13 at the moment uh, and, and you don't really know verification. Um, and I don't know why at 17, you know, and 11 months, no, no drinking in Australia and 18, go as hard as you want. <laughs> um, but, you know, basically, I think people would say that, uh, I don't know, like alcohol, I think could be net positive for you. So there's a cost benefit. Like, 
okay, you catch up with your friends, you have a laugh, catching up with them is really good for your mental health because you, you know, have connection with people, you, you smile, all those things that are good, right? But yeah. then there's stuff that's in alcohol. I'm pretty sure like, oh, all that sugar and all that alcohol, that's not exactly great for your health. And so there's some cost sort of benefit. But if you've got bad mental health, it leads to bad physical health. There's all these sort of studies on this. So if you have good mental health, you live longer and you are less sick in those years. And so if you're feeding through social media unhealthy stuff to your mind, junk food, then you get an unhealthy mind. And then that Ooh. unhealthy mind is going to make you physically, you know, sick. And so one of the easiest sort of studies they can see is loneliness. And so being lonely, they say, is the equivalent of smoking a packet of cigarettes a day. Now, I can't remember the exact definition of what is lonely or not. I'm sure there's gradation. Like, you know, there's like super lonely, which I presume is what they're going at. But poor mental health is not just, oh, your body's fine. It will mess everything up. And so I think alcohol could be seen done well is actually good for your health overall. Now, some negative, some positive. Um, And alcohol done badly is real bad for your health, but both physical and mental, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas I think social media can be positive and can be negative. I just think that if you look at the studies, it's making people more anxious, it's making all these things. Yeah. It's right now not being used on average in a net positive way. Yeah, and, and I, I, I get the, 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 the point you're making in terms of alcohol done well can be well. Um, where I can see the distinction between like alcohol and social events, so like, um, I guess my um, my interpretation for you is that alcohol done well is just enjoyed in moderation with friends, so that you can have that kind of um, that relationship uh, being fostered. Whereas alcohol done badly is like just drinking a bottle of wine by yourself at home while watching Netflix or something like that. Um, no, I think it's it just is it removing downside. So you've got a pain in your life you're trying to hide from, or is it adding upside? Right. Yep. Okay. Uh, okay. So that's that, that's another interesting distinction like you could pop, you could possibly argue uh, going out on a bender with the boys is adding upside even though yeah. the, the day after might be a little bit regrettable uh, <laughs> um so it's how do we use the same lens for social media um which i think is just another channel of the digital um way of communicating like duncan and i are communicating right now over the phone um, that's one-to-one, where social media is you're, you're communicating over the internet and that can be one-to-one, one-to-many um, or something similar. And so it's, it's about, well, where does, if it's not about enhancing existing relationships, where does the, um, I guess, the uh, uh, the line get drawn where we can say this is how we create um, authentic connection or foster, um, you know, social media done well, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's going to be hard to define, but all else equal, does it, you know, help you basically live a better life or a worse life? <laughs> and so if you if you fed yourself status anxiety all day, you become anxious. If, if yeah. you fed yourself fake news, you, you might start to think something, you know, is going to happen that isn't. Um, but if you fed yourself, oh, isn't it beautiful that my friend, you know, has a wonderful holiday and I'm happy for them or whatever else it is. Mm. And so it's kind of how you use it. It's not just actually the ingredients, it's how you process the ingredients. Yeah. So it is a form of connection. It's just what goes through that connection. Mm. Is it healthy connection or unhealthy connection? And mm. I don't think you can unilaterally say, well, this is healthy, this isn't healthy. Um, all else equal, I've stopped using Facebook and Instagram. Um and now I just have like, I don't know, WhatsApp group with my family um, and some really tight people. So it's sort of 10 people that I actually want to sort of see this stuff. And, and I don't sort of check in on what other people are doing. And that sort of has worked for me. Mm. Um, yeah. I actually really like that. Um, 
and it sounds super obvious repeating it back to you, but it's not... Um, repeat back things you like that I've said. You can do that anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's not social media, it's how you use it. Yeah, and, 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 but that plays back to the original points we were making around, well, the way in which we use things, regardless of the substance, could be um, a combination of our physiological, psychological, and sociological health. So I think to help um, put this in a similar lens, social media might not need to be something that we have to monitor more closely other than maybe an age limit because of the maturity of the, um, the mind. But as long as we just focus on taking care of each other from a physiological, psychological, and sociological lens, then social media is simply just a means that we then will communicate with each other more uh, healthily through. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I said this at the start. Paper isn't well, good or bad. Yeah. You know, so the, the internet isn't good or bad. Social media isn't good or bad. It, it's what you do with it. It's a medium. It's not the yeah. message. Now, you get to choose what message you put on there and what message you consume from there. Um, and done well, it'll be good for you. And done poorly, it won't be. I, I just think yeah. on average, it's not good. Yeah. But I think that we'll learn how to use it well. So I think social yeah. media will be around for the long term. But that the usage behavior of it will probably be different to what it is now. Yeah. I guess the point I'm making is that um, it's not the what you use it for is why. And the why is because you have a healthy foundation, um, you know, physiologically, psychologically, and sociologically. Like mm. if you have a healthy foundation of a good, fit and healthy body because you take care of it. If you have a good foundation psychologically because you grew up in a safe environment, you know, you know that you're loved by your uh, closest family um, and that um, you may be, as your point, Duncan, you have a mission or a calling or something in life that you are striving for. And then finally, sociologically, you feel connected to your peers at work. You feel connected to your friends out at a bar while you're going out on a bender or whatever it is that people do these days. Um, so if you've got all of those boxes ticked maybe, then, well, you're not going to then, well, it might then be that you're not going to go onto social media and then go down a dark rabbit hole of um, conspiracy theories and um, you know inauthentic connections, so to speak, because you already have a very healthy foundation to start with. So maybe that was the why that I was um, that I was looking for. Yeah, I think you can look at it from other ways. Like it can be a slippery slope. Like you can have substances that are looking for you to hide from some pain, mm. but then they can also cause a problem. <laughs> so I think you might go onto social media all innocently and you're all good, and then you constantly see all these people doing fancy things. They've got into a fancy restaurant, they've got fancy clothes that you know on a fancy holiday, and Those slowly they people. say you become what you eat. You know, you you are the average of the five uh. people you spend the most time with. And you spend time and then over time you're like, well, I need to have this. I need to have this. And then you start to have status anxiety. And so this actually starts the addiction. It, it is the root of the problem. And that you need to stop feeding yourself this to get off it. So it could be that you you, know, you need to sort of be on there to stop yourself from some other place. But it can mm. also be the root cause of what this is. I thought we'd just segue um, into one other thing quickly because we're going to run out of time soon. I thought I'd talk about, is there such things as good addictions? And the one which I came up the most to me is love, as in romantic love. So basically, when you fall in romantic love, the first part is infatuation. And that's where you get this mega chemical high and you get dopamine, oxytocin and serotonin go off. And it's the best feeling that most people have ever felt or the best natural chemical high they've ever had. Um, and Socially permissible just... insanity, they say. Yeah, exactly right. It's not just socially acceptable. 
it's it's actually pushed on you. So if you don't have a relationship, you're seen as not good. So this addiction, so if you're single, you are addicted to finding love. You have to go out and spend time on the apps and spend time socializing, meeting people, attempting to find this. So you're effectively a junkie that's trying to get your hit. And society says that you have to do this all the time until you find someone. And I think this is really quite be a pernicious, you know, actual addiction. Mm. Okay, so um, so let's unpack that. First of all, um, as you said in the beginning, Duncan, there were good and bad addictions. So I think we um, settled on dependency and desire. I can't remember if you rather a different word, but just something that makes you happy. So we're looking here through the lens of society convincing us that this is a, well, you have a bad addiction. Because if you don't do this, then you're not socially acceptable. Is that right? Well, I'll give you an example. Like, I'm 35, you're 35. You know, if you are 35 and single, um, then society's like, well, what's wrong with you? How come you haven't got a partner? There must be something wrong. I know friends um, that are single, and the rest of their life's great. Great job, they like it, great friends, great family, good health, single. It's like the world is caving in on them. They spend every spare second trying to find a partner. And they're sort of addicted. They've got to get this. They've got to get this. And then they... So I think, you know, romantic relationships done well are great. Romantic relationships done badly are horrible. Just like paper done well is good. Paper done badly is bad. Social media done well is good. And then they might, you know, enter into a relationship that isn't good because of this seen need or this society story that they're told. And then it doesn't end well. They, you know, have a divorce or they have unhappiness. So Mm. I think that we are literally, as a society, addicted to love. It's pushed everywhere. All the movies, Disney, all the advertising, everything. Mm. And if you don't have it, you have withdrawal. You have unhappiness. Everything all over the place. Well, yeah. So um, the first point is that while there is a a large role society plays in it, but this is quite physiological as well. We are hardwired in our brain to seek out uh, relationships because, as you said, Duncan, when we go through the first phase of romantic um, love... It's not society who's dumping dopamine and serotonin into our bodies. It's simply the reaction we get from when we are around this other person. Um, and, and that's been developed over um, several hundred millennia. Um, the societal, I think, pressure comes in. And, and believe me, I, I felt the societal pressure of being too re- publicly romantic. Maybe you can say a few things about that, Duncan. But um, the societal pressure, I would say, comes from the not the look, but the, the, the final fade, which is the, the marriage, the family, the kids, the, the, um, the settling down, so to speak. Um, and you have, but you've got to push through the initial psychologically addictive phase of that romantic phase of love. Yeah, so I think there's a sort of chemical part which feels good, but then it's attached to the story. So what is love? It's a feeling. You know, you feel it for that person. Mm. Well, that feeling is actually just chemicals being released in your head. <laughs> and yeah. it's not necessarily that they're super special. But I think I was looking at it more from a story perspective. So, you know, if you're dependent on something, if you don't have it, you're unhappy, right? And you can have a, a substance dependence, right? Um, yeah. Or it can be I'm actually hiding from something, so I'm dependent on this as a Panadol to hide from it. It's many different places. But I think love, which is seen as a good addiction, if you're single and, you know, the time's ticking by, you know, um, (laughs) then you're unhappy. And so you're dependent on this. And that's not seen as a sort of bad thing. And so I personally think that, yeah, whilst, you know, we're sort of wired to have that feeling with certain things and, you know, sex feels good for a reason. So you want to do it so you can make more humans. um, 
that it actually can be not something you necessarily need to live a good life. I'm saying it done well, it could be great, but you don't need to have it. Whereas Ooh. I think society says you must have this and if you don't have this, you will not live a good life. And that almost in some respects, single people are treated as second-class citizens. Um, so, yeah. Are you feeling oppressed, Duncan? No, I mean, I've sort of gotten over this story. And so I personally think that relationships are wonderful, but I, I love my relationship with James. Um, and honestly, like platonic love, love of the mind, not love of the flesh. I think minds can be a thousand times more beautiful than any physical thing. And mm. I'm much more interested in interacting at a mental level with somebody than I am on a physical level. Um, mm. And that, I, you know, I need my space. I think others need their space. And so I don't have any shortage, in my opinion, of quality human interaction. Um, mm. What I want more than anything is just downtime. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think we can we can go another whole hour and then start talking about the, the, the semblance or aspect of love, the different stages that we go through. But I, um, I definitely... Um, I can see your point, Duncan, being made about how this can actually be considered um, a substance that society as a whole is addicted to. This idea of romantic love, which is actually a very, very young idea. Romantic love wasn't something that was generally treated as um, popular until um, you know, up to maybe just 500 years ago. So um, I get your point that this is something that, well, if I don't have it by the time I'm 35 and the clock's ticking away, then yeah, I can't function normally. I now need to go and find that um, that ideal of a partner that I will then be able to settle down and start a family with. So that could be considered as a bad addiction. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do summaries now. But basically, how much of your time have you spent thinking about or trying to find a partner? And how much of your unhappiness has come from not having a partner or having that go not well? Mm. This sounds like... A, a, an addiction, <laughs> right? But it's, it's coded in the story, you know, a very, very deep story that this is a core way to good life. Um, so a summary from me. Um, I think that I like the biosocial psychological model and that you need to have all three in a good place. Any one of them in a bad place will mean the others being in a good place doesn't really matter. Um, I like the idea that a lot of addiction is not the, sub, the, the um, fault of the substance, but it's the fault mm. of a problem elsewhere. Um, so connection to other people, connection to, to a purpose in life, as an example. But mm. I also like the idea that sometimes the substance is the problem. <laughs> and so, for instance, if you feed yourself status anxiety, you know, for t 10 minutes a day every day on Instagram, then you become anxious about your status type thing. Or if you smoke cigarettes... 10 cigarettes a day every day, then it becomes very hard to not have them, you know? Um, so it's kind of not that there's one way. It's not that it's always the substance or it's always some sort of trauma. You know, mm. it can sort of start in different places. And I, I think sort of where we ended, which was, well, so stories can be a substance. Mm. And one of these is, you know, you must find a partner. And how much of your time do you spend doing this? You might not have realized it, but it's kind of like, since the age of puberty, you have spent a non-trivial percentage of your time either trying to find a relationship or being in a relationship from a romantic perspective. And, I, you know, I think friendships are relationships, but they're not sort of seen in the same way. And it's like, perhaps, you know, 50% of your spare time has been devoted to this addiction. And it's given you the highs and lows of all over the place, you know. And, you know, is it needed? Like, maybe. You know, it's certainly not needed to sustain the human race. It used to be that the most important thing you could do for humanity was to have more children. Now, the most important thing you could probably do is to have not have children because we've got too many humans on Earth and it's causing <laughs> climate change. All right, summary from me, over. <laughs> All right, so 
The topic of this article was the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And as we talked about in the beginning, like just that single sentence alone fundamentally turned a lot of my understanding of the world on its head. Uh, just, just from reading that sentence alone, you suddenly um, come to a realization, taken, you know, t- taken as a truism, that it's not substance that causes the addiction, it's our relationship with things. Our relationship with... Or lack thereof, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's the nature of the relationship. And mm. looking at the the, um, the different spheres, there's a relationship you have with your own body. Are you healthy? Are you treating it with care? Relationship with your mind. Are you? Do you have high self-esteem? Do you have good coping and social skills? And then there's relationship with other people outside of yourself. Um, do you have a good, strong family unit? Do you have a good um, set of peers that you can talk to? All of these different kind of things um, play into a wider ecosystem. So suddenly... For me, the conversation is no longer about, well, they're just a substance and people can be addicted to those substances. It's more a bigger picture about, well, what is the whole person in this scenario and how does the substance relate to them? So that substance doesn't have to be something like smoking or alcohol. It can be something like too much work or no work. It can be something like social media or playing video games. Um, so I think it's really helpful trying to understand um, and like the way I like to think of it is connection is not just about your connection with other people it's your connection with everything how are you connecting to yourself like do you have a good relationship with yourself you know if, if you're um, if you don't like being alone with yourself you're in bad company <laughs> um, and so that's where the addiction side comes from this semblance of you try well the way I see it is addiction comes from when you're trying to placate or um, get something from a substance rather than having a healthy relationship with something else. So you're doing that replacement. Hmm. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Maybe I'm addicted to it. And I think I'm going to go and have a wine tonight. <laughs> a wine like a whinge or a wine like a red glass? Probably both. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, cool. James, great to chat. Um, We'll talk about something in the future together. All right, dude. Speak to you later. Bye.